this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanandan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. All right, so I have a factual story to tell you. I took our new Brittany, Carla Lulu, hunting for the first time yesterday. And how did that go? It was great as far as the hunting goes, right? Meaning we drove two hours, walked five hours, saw two cubbies of quail. I got two shots and I hit one bird. Okay, so I can totally see why hunting stories might need to be more (laughs) frequently embellished. But what does that have to do with nonfiction in the age of no facts, which is the topic of our show for this episode? All right. Okay, because here's here's the story. Driving home, uh, I was hunting on Fort Riley, which is like a couple hours west of Kansas City. I... My tire started losing pressure. I pull off the highway in McFarland, Kansas, near the cemetery. I've got a flat tire. My car doesn't have a spare. I'm trying to call tow trucks. Two nuns in a minivan came to investigate or to, to like leave something at a at a graveyard at a grave in the cemetery, and then left without noticing that I was there, stranded by the roadside. Um, I, I kept trying to call this guy Tui Miller, who I'd gone hunting with, who's in his late 70s, whose real name is Whitney Miller. Um, the second and thus Tui and who might be one of the people that who, who, who might I might be named for because of my mom knew him in high school and so maybe she got the name Whitney which is how I got named Whitney so except for the fact that Tui never answers his phone no right? so no, I, no, I, no 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 stop 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 first of all you surely you must be making shit up um second of all this is the banter part so that we is don't all actually true have time. but it goes on forever <laughs> we don't have time for all this detail Plus, haven't you heard? Trump didn't lose the election. Vaccines have microchips embedded in them. Facts are not worth this kind of attention anymore, especially mundane facts about some nuns and a guy named Tui. (laughs) Which is why, fortunately, we have two authors who have not given up on facts and how to present facts in a timely manner and who may, in fact, believe that these so-called mundane facts are exactly what we need to be paying attention to in order to heal the republic or at least ourselves in the second half of the show, we'll be talking to Brendan O'Meara, writer and host of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. But first, we're thrilled to welcome novelist and essayist Claire Massoud. Claire is the author of six works of fiction, including the New York Times bestsellers, The Emperor's Children and The Burning Girl. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and she's here to talk to us about her book of essays, Kant's Little Prussian Head and Other Reasons Why I Write. Claire, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sugi. Thank you, Whitney. It's great to be here. It's very nice to have you here. Um, In the introduction to this uh, essay collection, which I really enjoyed, um, speaking of the relationship between today's news and the great literature of the past, you write, it's all already happened somewhere in some way. It's out there to be retrieved, which is basically the foundational concept of this podcast, which we say at the top of every show. Could you elaborate? Well, you know, certainly emotionally, right? The gamut of emotions has been experienced, but I think weirdly, literally, you know, I mean, here we are in a pandemic and it's not the first pandemic and we can read Pale Horse, Pale Rider, or we can read uh, Boccaccio's Decameron. Camus the Plague, right? I mean, I was thinking know. we're going to talk about Camus later and I was thinking, well, he would be a good one to be reading. Right. And he's a, a good one, a good one for this time. But but I also, you know, it's it, it, there are so many examples of, of that. And, and I joined, you know, a public space uh, .org had, has an ongoing series of book groups, but the first in the spring was Yoon Lee's War and Peace book group. And so I was rereading War and Peace in the middle of, you know, in the sort of darkest days of, of March and April. 
And there are these scenes uh, that you may recall where where everybody's trying to flee Moscow. And it was at a time when people were trying to get out of New York City. And, and suddenly, you know, having having all the wealth in the world didn't matter. What you wanted was was to get out of Moscow and get to some farm in the middle of nowhere to get away from from the invaders you know so so um it, it, in in the tolstoy it's a it's an army uh in 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 our case it, it's been a virus but but the but but the atmosphere and the and the and the and the circumstances are oddly resonant and another one i read i read valerie paul valerie's essays and and he he wrote in in 1936 about how which I feel you know we should pay attention. He wrote in 1936. He said you know the big problem we have right now is that he was in his 60s at that point. He said young people think that that the older generations haven't lived or experienced anything because of the technology gap, because because the older people don't know about technology. Younger people think they have nothing uh, nothing to say to them, and of course you know I have I have teenage kids who think I <laughs> I mean my son says to me all the time well if I give him advice he's like well dad you didn't have electricity growing up you know he's and he literally believe I mean he doesn't really believe that but he wants to constantly he feels that it's okay to say like yeah you you made fire outside you didn't have indoor heating you know that that kind of thing that's his view of my technology ability even while I am better than him at some certain technology things like remembering to charge my phone. <laughs> Good for you, because I feel like I, I lose on all fronts. Like, I'm not better. I'm not better at any of it. One of the through lines of this connect, this collection has to do with difficulty or impossibility of actually being factual about our experience, speaking of the technology gap in the internet. Um, and so this is really at the heart of your collection's title essay, Kant's Little Prussian Head. And I wondered if you would read to us from that essay to start us off. Sure, sure. So, so um, this this essay, I feel that the Beckett line, um, "We can't go on, we must go on," or the Beckett line, "Fail again, fail better," um, are sort of at the at the center of what I was trying to get at here. Um, but, but I will start the section I'm going to read involves uh, quoting Thomas Bernhardt, who was a super crabby Austrian writer who died in 1989. As Thomas Bernhardt's scathing narrator recalls in his brilliant novel, The Loser. While reflecting upon his friendship with the pianist Glenn Gould, who is, needless to say, the narrator's figment, a version of the genius that only partially resembles the man himself, but that's another story. Anyway, the narrator recalls Glenn saying, fundamentally, we are capable of everything. Equally fundamentally, we fail at everything, he said, I thought. Our great philosophers, our greatest poets, shrivel down to a single successful sentence, he said, I thought. That's the truth. Often we remember only a so-called philosophical hue, he said, I thought. We study a monumental work, for example, Kant's work, and in time it shrivels down to Kant's little East Prussian head and to a thoroughly amorphous world of night and fog, which winds up in the same state of helplessness as all the others, he said, I thought. A good friend of mine, a philosopher and a Kant scholar, has devoted the past 20 years to interpreting passages of Kant's critique of judgment. It is but one of the briefer texts in Kant's monumental work, and yet in order properly and thoroughly to understand it, she has committed all of her adult life thus far and considers her labor far from complete. For almost all of us, such serious focus on Kant's thought is impossible. For most of us, if we apprehend even a so-called philosophical hue, we consider ourselves in pretty good shape. It's like the dizzying enormousness of the cosmos in reverse. If, in order properly to understand a paragraph of Kant, one would need to engage in a lifetime of study, what are we to make of the entire breadth of his oeuvre, the observable universe of his oeuvre, if you will? 
And what beyond that are we to make of the fact that Kant's published writings represent already a careful ordering and editing and articulation into intelligible language of his philosophy, of his conscious thought? And beyond that, given that his thought arose in part from his experience, experience all but entirely lost to us, made up of countless minutes and hours and days and years of life upon this planet, of Kant's individual and particular life, how are we to conceive of the unknowable vastness that was Kant? And further, if Kant is just one philosopher among thousands, just one German among millions, just one man among billions, how can we conceive of the entirety of uncommunicated and incommunicable human experience? What infinite invisible universe of Bernhardian night and fog is this in which we must drift the great genius Kant, according to Bernhardt, in the same state of helplessness as all the others. Thomas Bernhardt was a writer who took the dark view. The shrinking of Kant's mind, the breadth of his interests and wisdom down to his little East Prussian head does seem like a loss, but maybe too it's like the freeze-dried vegetables in packet soup, merely awaiting water for reconstitution. In contradiction to Bernhardt's darkness, I'll offer a quotation from a 1980s British film, The Long Good Friday, in which the gangster Harold Shand, brilliantly played by the late Bob Hoskins, gives a party, a speech at a party on his yacht in the Thames, welcoming the American mafia to London to collaborate on some white collar crime in the East End. Hands across the ocean, he says in his cockney growl, bullish and optimistic, hands across the ocean. Because of course, Bernhardt is absolutely right. Of so much of our lives we retain but a so-called hue, philosophical or not. But to convey what Bernhardt laments as a single successful sentence, that I firmly believe is cause for celebration. Even a single successful sentence can be transformative and a single poem or novel can alter someone's life forever. That is hands across the ocean. And it's a meeting that happens if not only, then most fully through language. With words, we can travel across nations and through time. We can inhabit lives far from our own. Thank you very much. That's really good. Um... There's a positive ending to that passage, but I want to go back to the part um, about this idea of reducing Kant's entire life and thought or anyone's life and thought down to a few key sentences. You know, today you hear people talk about the, uh, you know, arguments for and against the use of facts, right? That surely the right side is to be on, in favor of facts and the wrong side is to be against facts, which as the side I, I'm against the use of non-facts. But when you ask, how can we conceive of the entirety of uncommunicated and incommunicable human experience, you seem to be suggesting kind of a different equation, which is really interesting to me, that, that the problem isn't lack of facts, it's that we have too many facts. It, it's certainly true. One thing is, of course, that we're now bombarded with facts and with information or with non-facts, but we're just bombarded um, because of technology in ways that we historically weren't. It was just much harder to get information if you had to, you know, sit down and read a newspaper or um, go out and meet people in the town square, you know, was uh, rather than your phone sort of pouring information to you uh, nonstop. That, that, there's that whole thing about the number of images that we uh, take in or that we see in a, a single day that is more than people used to see in a lifetime, I think. But I think that one of the things that um, writing can do is, is curate those facts in a productive way right? I, I have a friend who's a physicist and, and, um, and, and her project is at CERN, that vast um, super collider in Switzerland. And, and, you know, you can't observe the trajectory of, of, a, of, a, of a quark, but 
what you can do is is measure at certain points. And so then you can you can project what that trajectory is. There's no way you can catch it the whole way around, but you can if you if you strategically and wisely choose the points that you that you record, you can you can extrapolate what its actual trajectory is. And I feel as writers that's that's what our job is, strategically to choose the points so that that your reader can can infer their trajectory. So maybe part of our job of developing a voice is thinking about how we developing principles for picking those spots. Totally. You know, I try to explain to my um, students um, that 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 those are political choices, right? I, I mean, I think one of the things that's hard when you're starting at writing and you're you know and you're young is you think, oh, if I if I believe in you know, the good of such and so. I need to portray this person only as, only the good things about this person. But of course, if in, when a character in a story only has only positive attributes, they don't feel real because human beings don't only have positive attributes, right? Like we're all, we're, we're all a mix of light and dark. And so, um, you know, I try to explain that actually you want to choose the details that give the complexity of something, um, but also the, the vision of that person that you hope to convey in its fullness, right? In its, in its three-dimensionality. I don't know if this has been a case for either one of you since we all teach, but I recently taught a, a few books that had like complicated characters. Uh, I think I taught Russell Banks' Continental Drift and I taught N.W. by Zadie Smith and I taught Another Country by James Baldwin, all of which have like really unpleasant characters in them who do bad things and cheat on their spouses and all kinds of stuff. And, and you know, of course, this all came up uh, with um, The Burning Girl, right? Your novel like had a lot of discussion about what is a good and bad character supposed to be like. And, and they were really intolerant of characters who did anything bad. And I was like, well, what are you going to write about then? I mean, I, you know, how is this going to work for you? Yeah, no, I think I feel as though that um, it's an interesting puritanism, right? That, yeah. that, that they want characters to be exemplary, it, like to have, to have flawless lives in, in ways that they themselves don't have and their friends don't have and their families don't have. It's an interesting desire. It's actually sort of like Aristotle, right? Didn't he say that, you know, that's why you were only supposed to have, you know, kings and princes is because they were supposed to be better than the common run of, of people. If they fell from high, you know, then the tragedy was all the greater. I wonder how much of that is sort of an, a struggle with um, like recently conversations becoming more sophisticated with regards to race and people thinking about, um, for example, like the overrepresentation of narratives of people of color sort of suffering and then sort of a desire to render onto the page people sort of resisting that and with like lives that are very happy. Um, and then as you say, like the problem sort of behind that, that that isn't very complex and also isn't that realistic or um, isn't really a particular testament to those communities, even though um, like sort of the depiction of joy in those contexts is important. There's also sort of the desire among my students anyway, for people to be critical in ways they haven't in the past. So they'll say, you know, this depiction is problematic or that depiction is problematic and they'll be correct. Um, but I would love for the conversation and sometimes the students are able to, to are the ones able to do this to make the conversation more complicated about how do you have a character behave badly? And then also say like, you know, that the, book isn't condoning that? And then is it even a book's job to pass judgment in that way? Right. I, I mean, these are conversations that have always existed and that, 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 you know, since the beginning of 
of literature, but but I certainly think we're in a moment much more than when I was young, where people um, feel powerfully the 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 political uh, power of fiction and the political engagement of fiction, and and I'm I'm I I'm always trying to just I I I believe that all fiction is political. I also believe. Um, and I try to tell him, you know, that Chekhov line, it's not my job to tell you that horse thieves are bad people. It's my job to tell you what this horse thief is like, right? That it's, that, that actually, that to give the reader the, the, the agency and the, and the freedom to make a decision for themselves about a character or a situation, that's, that's actually the, the writer's job is to, is to, to sort of, um, to illuminate as, to observe as closely as possible without, without passing judgment. I, I do worry about the idea that, that characters should be exemplars in some way and should be should show us how to think or how to feel rather than characters should be just people. Um, I, I'm somebody who's really believes that characters should be just people and then and then the reader takes whatever they, they're gonna take from that. Claire, in your essay The Road to Damascus, which is a meditation on your father's death, you ask how can it be that all that is in us dies with us? How can it be that those memories now have ceased to be? So am I right to see these as related frustrations that life is both too varied to be catalog sort of information overload, as we were discussing before, and that what we do catalog is impossible to preserve? You know, I think I, that's true. And I suppose that's the sort of glass half empty version, right? And and I'm, I, I, I'm a real believer in the, in the glass. I, I, I experience the glass half empty and I also believe in the in the glass half full. And I think, you know, there's a the epigraph to um, Penelope Fitzgerald's novel, The Blue Flower, um, which is about the poet and aphorist Novalis, a German romantic poet in the late 18th century. And and it, the, the, the epigraph is from him and I'm going to mangle it, but but it is it is literature exists to fill the gaps of history. Right. And and I think that that that, um, you know, that sense that 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 we it's true we can't preserve but if if we observe carefully we can imagine and we can imagine a lot and 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 literature enables us really you know really to step into other experiences and other lives that would otherwise be lost i think much more than when i was young i think of so much of literature as sort of bearing witness to human experience that that's actually um and 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 you know talking about that's what I want to say to my students is it's not that you have to present a gussied up version of somebody's life. There are so many stories that haven't been told. Tell the stories of the lives and the experiences and the people whose stories have not been recorded. And just to do that, right? Just to do that, just to bring the news, right? That's incredible. I really like that, I, that, that, that that should be the news. And I'm, I've got this idea that I'm trying to develop, you know, and, I, and it's not completely articulated even in the questions that we wrote for the, for the podcast, that I feel like when a society is healthy and operational, that individual peoples and families have the space and time and lack of fear to chronicle their own history and that their private lives become the news that is brought then out to the world. And that I have felt like, the society that I'm living in for the last three years, and maybe longer than that, you know, I can even especially during the war. I mean, I wrote about the the war in Iraq, isn't really healthy, and so I didn't. I felt a lot less willing to pay attention to that private news, you know. And and it seems like 
the message that what Trump is asking Americans to, to, is, to do is put him in the place of that private news, right? His story, his facts, his election fraud, whatever you know, his story is that's happening then is what you should be following instead of the narrative of your own life. You know, does that ring a bell to you? Does that seem accurate? Yes, totally. And I, I mean, the number of times I, I felt that I'm, you know, I have moved into a dysfunctional family with a with a tyrannical, um, you know, addictive, addicted and addictive patriarch, right? Abusive patriarch. That's, you know, who, who's going to make sure that, you know, your whole life stops to, to revolve around this, this head of the household. But that wouldn't have been possible. He, he wouldn't have been able to do that if he wouldn't have been elected if we hadn't been in a state of dysfunction as a as a society already. I, I really think that's true. And I think there are all kinds of reasons why that's so. And I, how long have we got? Like I could give you my, I could give you my like hour long um, sort of rant about all the things that I think are feed into this. But I, but I, but what I would say is that I think that the, the lack of respect for the dignity of a private of a small private life is a is a real problem right I, um in our culture at the moment that that and that that has to do with so many things including um paradoxically the the privileging of we we're the society for where everybody's an individual but we we have so privileged the individual over the collective right that that we're always looking that an individual has to stand out in some way to be a celebrity or a millionaire or whatever to be worthwhile and and i don't think that was true um in my parents generation i don't think that was true really when I was young or maybe just beginning. And I think social media, I mean, first television, um, but then social media, th those things f feed it, right? So we spend our time looking at the pictures of other people's lives, thinking because those people have chosen really nice pictures that their life must, their lives must be better than, than ours are. I mean, Asugi, and I'm curious to know what your, like how your family drew up its narratives. I mean, Claire, there's so much about your family in this essay collection, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go on. But I remember... You know, my family has lived in Kansas City since like the 1890s. So there's been a lot of stability that other people don't always get to have. And that gives us a certain sense of, you know, space and the ability to have these to have these sort of memories. But, we, you know, there was a sense prior really to the Internet of my family spent a lot of time talking about itself, right, writing my grandfather painted pictures of the kids in the family. And and I have like a a hand-painted like list of everybody's birthday and what was happening within the family and in the private space of just this city, we didn't really think about anything outside of it, was sort of self-sufficient for a lifetime, I think for my grandparents probably. And I don't, I feel like that's gotten a little lost, at least for me and my generation, in part because I got too much stuff to do. And, and I wonder, Sugi, for you, like does your, how does your family tell stories to each other and what do they do to keep track of their history? Um... That's probably a longer answer than I can manage in, without derailing this. But I think it's such an interesting question. And, and so many, um, it was interesting to see Sri Lanka appear in, in this collection. My family is Sri Lankan. And so I think also, right, I come from a non-patrilineal family structure. So even just using, I can't really use names, um, like a house in my family burned in 1983. And so all the photos were, a lot of photos were gone. Um and I think that it has produced a generation of people, probably my generation, who are 
obsessively collecting whatever they can collect because they think it's possibly, I mean, it's at risk. Um, what isn't at risk? And so anytime you find, so it, it creates a kind of information hoarding, I think, um, like my desktop is a nightmare. Um, but it's such a beautiful mess and I'm so glad to have what I have, but uh, certainly it's a lot messier than I think what a lot of other people have. I, I'm a huge believer in letter writing, which comes back to this issue of the stories that our families um, tell ourselves. I grew up, I'm the child of my, not my dad, he never wrote letters, but my grandparents wrote letters and my mother wrote tons of letters. When I was in college, she wrote to me three times a week. Um, and, and I wrote letters. I wrote tons of, I never do. I mean, I, I'm the person who writes the, e the email or that text that goes on like three different, three, three, and people are like, oh, you know, doesn't she know how to text? But 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 I, I I just think that 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 record of of personal communication right between not for public consumption but between two people directly addressed, you know from one person to another, um, is such a is is such a particular way of telling the stories of our lives right and 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 everybody had access to that when that was a form of communication. And I feel like you can see that even drifting out of literature in the way that I mean I remember as a kid loving epistolary novels. I mean I remember reading like. Daddy Longlegs, or like the sections of um, like Ellen Montgomery books that were letters um, between little girls who were friends, uh, or I mean any one of a number of books that were in that form. And then now, I think also of um, you know several years ago, I read um, Neil Gordon's um, book about the Weather Underground. Oh my goodness, the title is escaping my memory. Is it the Company You Keep? Um, but it's it was in the form of emails, and it was right after sort of people had started using email and there were these really long emails. The book is in the form of really long emails. And I assigned it to some of my students. I thought it was, you know, totally normal. And I assigned it to some of my students and they were like, Sugi, no. <laughs> I was like, why not? They were like, no one writes emails this long. This is not realistic. And I felt so sad that they didn't have that. Um, and then I also felt, of course, antiquated. And, well, and, now, and now my kids, like, when I say send an email to so-and-so, they're like, email? What? I know. They yeah. don't, they don't email. That's too slow. It's too old. It's too wordy. Yes. So like the most recent form of popular epistolary novel is my colleague, Julie Schumacher's Dear Committee Members. Which is wonderful. Yeah. If I'm remembering right, Claire, you have an ancestor who wrote like a 1500 page book on like the family that he only intended his family to read. So, I mean, that seems like that level of interior attention is quite, that's quite a long email that would have been. Totally. Um. <laughs> yeah. But, but like, but thinking of all the lost, Sugi talking about, you know, what the photographs being lost, like he stuck the photographs in there and the telegrams and like some menus from restaurants and, you know, bills from hotels. And I mean, it's the whole thing. And I feel like when I, I, I read it for the first, from, you know, fully, I'd read bits before, but I had, I was, I was on leave from teaching and I spent a semester reading it and um, a couple years ago. And, and it was just incredible. I felt like, they were, my grandparents were totally present and alive to me in all their complexity. It was amazing. That sounds like such an, yeah. I mean, I read, just even reading about that, I was like, I want to read that. That sounds fascinating. Um, I want to go back to Camus, who came up a little bit earlier. You have three essays on Camus at the center of this essay collection. We all have writers who are foundational to the way that we think about the world and Judging from these essays, Camus seems to have been one of those writers for you. I don't, I don't know if you would agree with that characterization, but could you talk a little bit about that and about your connection with him? Yes. I mean, I, yes, he's absolutely foundational for me in, in all sorts of ways. I think, um, you know, I, artistically, one could say in, his, in, in the fact that he was, he was always exploring these different art forms, theater, 
the novel and the essay to try to um, ex express or, or explore f philosophical ideas through art. That is huge. But but it's also, I've had this like personal, little personal um, thing, you know, that um, he also, like my father's family was Piennois. They were French colonials from Algeria. And, and so too um, was Camus. And um, my grandfather was born in 1905. I think Camus was born in 19... I want to say 1913, um, and then my dad in 31, maybe it was 1915, my 1915 maybe, anyway, he was, so he was like right in between the generations of my family and um, went to the same high school as both my grandfather and my dad, um, but but I think for me, you know, I'm the child in that sense of, of colonial heritage, and the complexity of that, um, you know, and I think the complexity of that is something that I'm aware of and that I that I think about. I really feel that Camus was also aware of, and he had his limitations. You know, he one of the problems uh, in, in his writings about Algeria was that he couldn't conceive of an Algeria that wouldn't be French. He just couldn't conceive of it, um, and that meant that in the in the conversations that were going on about Algerian independence, eventually there was no room for him in in those conversations. But it's also true that um, that in a different had the world been different, you know, his vision wasn't actually different from, say, Mandela's, right? His vision was one of truth and reconciliation. Uh, it's just he was the wrong guy in the wrong time, and it was the wrong it was the wrong historical moment. But he 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 was fighting for justice, even even if he was starting um, from a position that was historically complicated. So I find him um, I find him endlessly interesting and very humane. Very humane guy. Well, I mean, speaking of moral complexity, as we were talking about earlier uh, in the show, you know, there's a line in um, that first essay, I think, by Camus, where a critic um, is saying of him, it is not intellectually or emotionally easy to have all of one's family on a side that is morally condemned, right? And that's the position that you're in if you're a French national uh, living in Algeria during the time of the war. And, and Camus, you know, had struggled with that. Um, your father, as you just pointed out, grew up in Algeria. He left in 1952, never to return. And so this essay, Camus in Algeria, the moral question, the moral question opens up with him crying, remembering a time when he thought that he had a country. And yet, as you point out in the same essay, no one in your family ever talked about the war in Algeria. It was sort of a blank spot in that history that we've been talking about. I wondered if you could talk about that. Yeah, I think um, among many people, I think there was a sort of consensus. There's the, an expression, il faut tourner la page, you've got to turn the page, and that you don't you don't get sort of nostalgic or you, 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 you go forward into the next thing. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I've been reading latterly a bunch of books by grandchildren of uh, Holocaust survivors and um, uh, relatives of, of people who perished in the Holocaust. And I think that was that was partly generational also you know i think there are many families where people just never spoke about it they just never wanted their children um you know to 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 carry that burden um i mean they're not they're not comparable uh to be on the wrong side of history and to be a victim of the holocaust is not the same thing but i but i just think that 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 um relation to trauma that idea that you um i think that, that in the mid century in this you know early part of the second half of the 20th century that there was very much that idea that you that you could that you had the ability to kind of put things away in a in a box and store them in the attic and just never take them out again and um and and i think you know we think of things we think about uh trauma differently now than than generally people did then
you brought up, oh, what is the book about the pandemic from 1918 that you mentioned? Pale Horse, Pale Rider. Yeah. That was famously, that pandemic was not mentioned very much and erased sort of in the same way. I do sometimes wonder like how many people will, how people will talk about this particular time period. You know, and I also wonder about like families here in the Midwest, um, you know, who who voted for Trump and supported Trump during this period of time. If he turns out to have been as bad a president as I think that he is, I wonder if they're going to also feel like it is not intellectually or emotionally easy to have been have all of one's family on a side that is morally condemned. You know, like I think about that, too. Like, how are people going to talk about this period of time when there was this sort of crazed support for one particular leader in America who seemed himself to be anti-democratic. Right. I mean, you know, again, the Second World War is is it becomes something that you um, that you think a lot about in that in that respect. And I mean, there's there's sort of the um, more more particular version of being German. Right. And the people who supported uh, the Nazis and then afterwards, you know, some supported the Nazis till they died. Um, But but I think also along the along the along the way in, in all the other countries in occupied Europe, the, the different choices that people made, right? And and that sometimes people had to make choices on the spur of the moment or with little information. And, and sometimes they made the wrong choice. And then they had to live with the consequences of those ethical choices for the rest of their lives. And I think, in, you know, in this country, um, I, I try, I, it's a thing that I just, I feel that Camus is actually useful for me in trying to, to think about everybody's, where everybody stands, you know? And I think, um, I I think about the fact that, um, you know, Trump seems to me so manifestly a liar, right? But but there are, it is not historically bizarre to believe your president, right? It's not historically a bizarre thing to do to believe what the president says. So so it's important for me to sort of keep that in mind, at at the same time because because it is a thing, you know, it is. I've always I've always said, you know, as a writer the you know, our limits are, are, are the limits of our imagination. So I know, you know, Joyce Carol Oates wrote that novel from the point of view of Jeffrey Dahmer. And like, I couldn't do, I, I don't think I could do that. Um, I, I don't think my imagination could go there. I feel like I'm trying really hard for my imagination to, to enable my imagination to go to the place of the people who in this time, even in this time have been supporting Trump, because if our nation is to survive, I feel like we have to have some understanding of that. I was thinking about, you know, For instance, your dad, he didn't like decide that France should colonize Algeria or that they should torture people during the war there. Right. He left in 52, but he still carries that connection. Right. So there are there are kids of families, you know, who are huge supporters of uh, what I would call an anti-democratic movement in the States. Right. But they don't they didn't choose that for themselves. They're just in it. Totally. I think there has to be some some move towards, as it were, truth and reconciliation. It can't be that there is um, that that there is no way forward. It's interesting, though. I don't think that we have in the American past really successful models for this, because I mean, if you look at like the Civil War, for example, right? I mean, we basically what wasn't it the statue? Is it the, the statue of Robert E. Lee that came down in the Capitol today? I feel like I saw that on Twitter, and um, you know, I is it? Are we going to see a statue of Trump in some? I mean, there's going to be a set of people who are just going to continue to cling to this. And I also wonder what we're going to do with them. Um, and I have no good answer for that. Well, well I think that's, you know, that's a, we're, we keep being told not to 
to compare it to the 1930s in Europe, but it is pretty hard not to, because I think that that, um, the, the idea that there's a sort of faction that is prepared to resort to violence that, uh, that is, that, that, that doesn't that doesn't accept the the facts. You know, there was a, a an op-ed not that long ago in the New York Times um, by a German maybe historian, but about the the this movement to reject the Treaty of Versailles by saying that the Germans had not by by the Germans telling themselves they did not lose the war. They were sold out in the treaty by cosmopolitans and you know, but that actually that was that was a fake news moment that the Treaty of Versailles was a fake news moment. But that but that falsehood w was crucially important in the rise of the Nazi party and eventually in the outbreak of World War II was was that there were large numbers in the way that there are now in this country, large numbers of people who don't accept the results of the election. There were large numbers of the people who did not accept the outcome of World War One. And they were counterfactual, but they but they had their conspiracy and off they went and, and, and it had really serious, massive ramifications. And I think, you know, that that's something that I really worry about. That in this country, this is only the beginning. That's what worries me. Oh God. <laughs> well, we're gonna talk about dogs next, but I don't know that that's a good idea. <laughs> I don't know. I need some comfort after that. All right, do it. Well, um, Claire, so there is one more essay here that we absolutely have to discuss, speaking of family histories, uh, and that is the essay, Our Dogs. Um, and Wit and I both have pandemic puppies, and we would love to hear about your dogs. So can I just ask, you both got them in the pandemic? We did. You did not have dogs before. Wow. I've actually never had a dog in my life. Wow. Wow. My wife and I had always had dogs, but then we had children and our dogs died. Right when the children were very young, we didn't replace them until now. So. Until now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So has it been a good thing? Sugi, has it been a good thing? I love having a dog. I mean, I grew up in a family where my sibling was allergic. Um, one of my parents had had a traumatic experience with a dog um, in Sri Lanka. A lot of a lot of dogs are rabid. Um, one of my parents was bitten by a dog and had to have sort of the full rabies series of shots. And that was a story that I heard endlessly. And now I have this like adorable wiener schnoodle. Um, and she's just the, the joy of my day. That's great. That's great. Yeah. We, you know, I, that dog, dog essay that's in the book is a little bit old because dog lives are, so I wrote it at a time when our, our dachshund who was, um, then venerable and indeed decrepit, um, but still with us, um, and and now has gone has gone to the great uh, the great Elysian fields to gamble freely, um, once again I hope, um, and and yet there, the, there's another dog uh, in that uh, in that essay who is still with us, um, named Bear, who was in an accident and um, and and blind as a result of the accident. He's now um, deaf as well, and he's we, we reckon he's somewhere between he's like 14, 15 now, and um, and and he is uh, he sleeps a great deal and then wakes up and and, and sort of tiptoes tap 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 around. Um, he's 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 a sort of skinny. He's like he's like he's like um, he's like an Edward Gorey character. He's <laughs> kind of like tiptoeing. And then we have these. Um, there's a it's sort of a long story, but we have now two other dogs. Um, so we have three dogs, which is um, 
arguably too many dogs. I, it, our house is sort of now as though um, we can't really have, even before the pandemic, we couldn't really have people around because it's not really like a house with dogs in it. It's like a dog house with some people in it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of a problem. Yeah. But the, the beagles are really fun, but, but, but I'll just say quickly, we got, we, so first we got Stella to keep bear the, the blind and deaf dog company. Um, and then he, as he got, even older, he just wouldn't play with her anymore. And, and she was very lonely and she would howl in her crate at night. And so I said, I said, it's always my fault. I said, I said, look, you know, they're pack animals. We should, you know, beagles are pack animals. We need to get another one. And then they'll be happy all the time. Well, they are happy all the time. They're just, you know, sometimes they're tearing around, chasing each other, growling, you know, picking up the, the mat in the kitchen and like tearing at it at either end. Anyway, so, but she's like, a, she's like the Sphinx or something, Stella. She's little, she has little paws. She's kind of dainty. So we got another um, beagle from the same place thinking like, oh, it'll be too little dainty. Uh, 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 no, uh, 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 uh. he's like, he's like, he's like the, the Marmaduke of dog. Like he's this huge, um, huge kind of beefy, uh, aggressive alpha dog who, who, who's super smart. And he'll, he'll, he, as soon, you know, he, if there's an animal on the TV, he'll watch it. And then if he can tell that it isn't right, he'll go up to the screen, he can tell it's not right there. So then he'll go into the kitchen because he thinks it must be behind the wall. He's that dog. So he's, and he's very smart and, and, and we're, we're useless trainers. So he's, you know, he's, he, he's, he's house trained. That's good. You know, but he does, he's, he eats the baseboards. He eats, he eats the furniture. He eats, he eats shoes. He, he ate, my husband had left his jacket over the back of a chair. He, he just stuck his nose in and took out two passports and ate those. Oh my God. Oh my God. So, yeah. So it's, you know, lively all the time here. Well, um, it sounds like a very happy dog home. Um, it, and we learn a lot about people, can I just say. I know so much about how people interact from watching my dogs. Oh, interesting. Because we're animals. We pretend not to be, but we're animals. That's awesome. I'll have to think about that and like think about how I've been teaching animal point of view in my comedy class. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of entertaining anthropomorphism, but maybe I should be thinking about it the other way around. <laughs> Claire, thank you so much for joining us. We encourage our listeners to pick up Kant's Little Prussian Head and Other Reasons by our right. It's been really a joy to talk to you today. And a joy to talk to you both. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you, Suki. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next up, we're joined by Brendan O'Meara, the host of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. Brendan has been an award-winning journalist for more than 15 years and is the author of Six Weeks in Saratoga, How Three-Year-Old Philly Rachel Alexandra Beat the Boys and Became Horse of the Year. He is based in Eugene, Oregon, and is is at work on a memoir about his father and baseball. Brendan, welcome to the show. Hey, Whitney and Sugi, I am so thrilled to be here. I'm such a deep admirer of the work you guys do with the podcast and your writing. And uh, just to be in conversation with you here on your home turf is, uh, is a thrill, and I'm so, uh, so happy to be here. Well, we really appreciate your making the time. And uh, today we're talking about writing and talking about nonfiction in an age of no facts. Uh, depressing. Right. Your show began in 2013, early in the second Obama administration, and one could state obvious truths back then without feeling gaslit by elected officials or major news channels. And when you were first starting out as a podcaster, you talked about art and truth and their importance and their coexistence. So how are you thinking back then about the role of facts on your new show about creative nonfiction? Yeah, it's facts 
to me are just, you know, a given. When you have nonfiction in the title of your show or when you purport to be a reporter of the news, whether it be sports or hard news or feature news, you just, you know, facts is the wireframe on which we hang the true story. And to me, there was never an argument that that would be an issue to interpret facts. Like when Bronwyn Dickey, the great writer and reporter who's been on the show several times, she went on a rant about um, the lifespan of a fact and that, that whole thing. And she's like, no, like a fact is a fact. There is no room for interpretation. There are certain things that are true. So when I start a podcast, of course, where I'm interviewing people about the art and craft of telling true stories, you know, facts are just kind of a, are kind of a given. And the people who are on the show have an understanding of that. So it's never been something I've really had to wrestle with. It's always been a given, which is nice. And, uh, but we can always talk about how, you know, memory can kind of, you know, put a, put a filter over fact, um, which, which can lead to some artistic freedom, artistic liberties, and certainly can lead to some great explorations. Um, But I think, you know, so long as the sun is rising in the east, I think we can all agree on that. And that's sort of a a core tenet of a CNF pod. But there have been, I mean, I think back to the different scan. I mean, and it's important that it's a scandal when it happens, right? That when somebody like James Fry, you know, gets busted for not, you know, being honest about what his memoir was about, or, you know, I've heard people criticize, you know, in cold blood for having, you know, really been not exactly reported in the way that Truman Capote claimed that he would go and talk to those guys in their prison, then come home and write down the conversations. Did he really, you know, was he really reporting on what they exactly said? Or was he basically writing, you know, dialogue for them? I mean, that that is part of the discussion about what is creative nonfiction and what is not. Yeah, exactly. And he I, I he purported to have like a photographic memory, which is, you know, just Maybe he did to some extent, but I'm sure you know he was more on the uh, certainly on the artistic liberty side of the reporting where if something sounded better on the page to him, that was more important. Fortunately, I guess I haven't had anyone on the show where I've really had to you know challenge the veracity of their reporting or their or their writing. Um, but we've had those talks with memory and the best memoirs to me, it's the people who can turn that camera inwards, can be a reporter on their own life and ask themselves the objective questions as if they were writing just a long feature about somebody else, but that long feature just happens to be them. And I think David Carr writes about that beautifully in a a conversation I just had with uh, Lee Gutkin, the founder of the Creative Nonfiction Magazine. You know, he's written a lot of narrative, immersive journalism, and his latest book is a memoir where he really did almost take himself to task the way he would uh, somebody else looking outward. He just had the the courage to turn it inwards and, you know, and do that kind of inward research and inward reporting. So I've been lucky that I haven't had like a James Fry, you know, locking horns type thing. Um, I welcome the day that that might come because that might be kind of fun for listeners. <laughs> We, we, we do want to, I did, that Lee Gutkin interview is really good, and we do encourage, we are also admirers of your show, and we do encourage our listeners to go check it out, um, and we'll have all that stuff in the show notes so people can look at it if they want. Um, now we're talking to you during this, like, period, you know, between Biden being elected and Biden being sworn in, um, and facts sort of feel like they're more under threat than ever. Um, this year, I mean, because, of course, the president is saying untrue things every day, regularly on his Twitter feed, and it's seems just basically most of the country seems to have decided that this is not happening. And then a part of the country has decided that it is and it's real and it's very bizarre. 
Um, this year alone, you've talked to Stephen Miller's biographer, you've interviewed the author of a book about citizen journalism, and done an audio magazine of essays about isolation. Um, tracing the arc of your show over its many seasons was really interesting, and I wondered how you see it developing uh, as the political circumstances outside of the show have changed. What's, what's nice about the show, and at least the tenor of it, is that it's sort of like a safe place for, for facts, and we're not going to certainly tolerate any, any perversion uh, of the truth. Like, it's going to be, you know, what it is. You're not going to have Newt Gingrich on to uh, talk about his recent <laughs> book? Yeah, ex- exactly right. And, and it's, uh, it's one of those things where I get to curate who comes on. And I, I, I have the people on who I deeply admire, how they go about the work, uh, the, the artistry of which that they can take, you know, verifiably true things and, and spin a good yarn and get creative in terms of the structure, but not necess- not the facts, of course. And so it's, so when you have someone like a uh, you know Jean Guerrero, who she her first book is a memoir where she really does this deep dive into her family and and her father in particular, and then she does you know she writes this you know this 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 biography on Stephen Miller and it's a totally different thing, and it's uh it's great to be able to you know chart the you know the evolution of a writer too when they kind of go from genre to genre you know say we're darby who is he, she's been on twice and her first book just came out sisters in hate about the leading women in the white nationalist movement and you know she could have over the course of her reporting certainly pushed back a lot against that because they don't stand for anything that say word stands for but in her reporting she wanted to let them talk and let her recorder fill up and her notebook fill up so she could write the story in a way that didn't imbue her worldview too much on the story she was trying to report. So those are always the, the, the neat questions that are worth unpacking, like how much do you impart you know, your own voice on it, or do you just let these people kind of talk and tell their story, even if you categorically disagree with them or find them just hideously, you know, just a uh, just horrible people to be around in uh, toxic people with toxic ideas. And when you're interviewing people, do you feel like, I don't know, now versus back in 2013, it makes sense that people would be worried about or thinking more about how their own judgment relates to the judgment of people who they're talking to. I guess I'm interested in whether the writers you're talking to and interviewing now are worrying about different things than they were back in 2013, or if it's sort of the same. Yeah, I, that's. Um, I feel like he's saying like that the craft questions are the same, and then like maybe the subject matter that people is writing about is different. I think so. I, I think the craft matters are largely you know the same. I because I, I try to at least have some degree of uh, of predictability to what I'm. So you know, there's an expectation on the listeners, and I don't want to stray too far from what they're used to, in a sense, because they come to the show to maybe you know learn a new trick. Uh, not a trick, but maybe a new skill that they can apply to their own work. So I don't want to necessarily go rogue off, you know, the things that uh, I think people have come to enjoy about it or what I think they enjoy, because largely I follow my own taste anyway, and I just hope that that aligns with the audience and to an extent, and uh, I think I think that's operated well to, to date. So, um, yeah, but even going back then, you know, I'm thinking, you know, who the, the real early run of the show and the audio quality was just like, you know, uh, 
you know, Nokia cell phones or something. Tell me about it. I you don't want to listen to the early shows of fiction, nonfiction Aww. anymore. We weren't like the tin can podcast. We were all right. No. <laughs> yeah, mine was definitely tin can. I uh, I posted in a uh, picture on my Instagram stories about my what my old rig used to look like, and I had this. Uh, you know, a little stand of some kind. I put a rubber band around a landline phone with the speaker facing this little cheap snowball microphone, and I put that on speaker. And so I'm kind of like it, talking into the phone. The speaker's going into the mic, and it's just you know, it's it's terrible. But it's just this idea that you know anyone can do this if you just want to. And then you can level up your gear, of course. You know, going from there. Uh, but yeah, just a lot of the people I talked to early on, you know, we're talking like a Brian Mockenhop, who's a great war correspondent. And he's written beautifully about PTSD in, um, you know, the living and the dead, uh, a former byliner original. And so in talking to him, it's just like, you know, how do you have the, you know, the, you know, the courage to really dive deep in people's lives and feel like you're not, you know, you're, you're trying to be empathetic and sympathetic to somebody's story and responsible with their story. Asking asking questions that really probe, but doing it in a respectful way, knowing that you're going to be essentially you're drawing out their story so you can tell a better story and you know, uh, in, in effect, kind of buoy your own you know journalistic brand, if you will. It's the whole the whole ethical thing with Janet Malcolm's and the journalist and the murderer. There's always that sort of give and give and take so you know talking talking to people about that and then as this show gained a little bit of traction talked to a lot of sports writers you know how about they you know just you know having that courage to go and ask those questions and i i i think a lot by and large whitney the kind of what you're getting at it's a lot of the same things and i think maybe it's just uh you know there's a bit more assuredness behind it after you've been doing it for you know almost nine years and 230 interviews you start to through the repetition of it you get a, a bit more skilled about how you go about asking those questions and i think that applies every bit to to a lot of the writers who were doing it then and they're doing it now but back then maybe they were working on long magazine features and then they're getting into their first books so you can kind of see the the growth of a lot of these writers too which is very exciting for me that's interesting. I like how um, one thing that your show does that is really cool is that to, to see, um, yeah, to see the same guests over different periods of time talking about different projects, different things, um, and to hear those voices change and to follow them over years of their career is really interesting. Like you've had Bryn Jonathan Butler on several times, um, Louisa Thomas a couple times. Um, and yeah, I, I, because of your own history as a sports writer, um, I think a lot of the, the episodes about sports are really interesting. Um, the episodes with, with sports writing guests are are some of my favorites. To that point, I've gotten emails from some of my some of the, some of my listeners who are not driven or even attracted to sports at all, but they tend to like it as well. They for some, I think maybe because I have sort of a I can speak a little bit more authoritatively in terms of how sport overlaps with life and how sport is so metaphorically tied into life that maybe I. Maybe there's a greater energy or a, a greater engagement in my voice when I have those conversations. And I, I think that the listener can really picks up on that. As Sugi just alluded to, you got your start in local journalism, including covering horse racing at the Saratogian. Am I saying that right? The Saratogian, yeah. <laughs> That's very <laughs> cool. Um, which is, you know, the site of some of the most prominent horse racing in the country. And not to mention Yado, speaking of writing. Uh, these days... Uh, um, though you're the opinion page editor at the Eugene Register Guard. I used to think of local newsrooms as feeders or incubators for certain kinds of essayists and magazine writers, but now there aren't nearly as many of those sorts of jobs, right? How does the change in local journalism 
affect the future of literary nonfiction, you know, and its relationship to fact. Yeah, I used to have that that same exact, you know, approach there where it felt like, you know, cut your teeth in these in these very small newsrooms. You know, my very first gig was in this very, very small newsroom in, uh, you know, Henderson, North Carolina, where I was a little sports writer, two-man sports team where covering, you know, maybe two games apiece, me and the editor, and we're laying out the pages as well. And so we're just really in the thick of it. And you're just writing, you're just churn, churn, churn. And with the idea being like, okay, I'm going to report like hell on these local stories, cover these high school preps as if, as if it's the World Series, because to a lot of them, it kind of is the World Series. And you kind of have to put your, you know, be like, yeah, it, this is big time for a lot of these kids. And so you treat it that way. And then, you know, of course, you just kind of you think about the maybe getting to a, a bigger market, in, in which case you get more ambitious with your with your storytelling. And uh, I, but, un, but unfortunately, as the newspaper industry has contracted and newsrooms have contracted, there's no longer the editorial coaching that you can get if you want to write a nice ambitious feature. Whereas you might be covering a few games and then maybe you and your editor can have a little meeting and be like, okay, I want to write a 1500 word feature that's taking a deeper dive. And I talk to 10 or 12 people. There just really isn't that kind of, okay, let's work on this for a few weeks and then go back and forth with line edits and restructure it, move things here and there, use dialogue over quotes, all this kind of thing that can really start to level up the artistry of the nonfiction you're looking to tell. And also just that greater creative muscle. And as I was going through, I just never had that. We just never had the time or the manpower to have that kind of relationship where you felt like you could start to, you know, level up. So in a way you have to just kind of take it, take the, that, that bull by the horns if you really want that and grab a, grab like a, uh, you know, a best American sports writing volume, RIP, unfortunately, this is the last year of it, or, you know, best American short stories or travel writing, you know, thumb through that and be like, okay, this is, this is the kind of work I want to do. Let's kind of deconstruct this, go to the notable selections and see the hundred bylines that are there in the, in the magazines and the small journals that are actually open to publishing that kind of work. And then you're like, okay, I like this kind of work. I like doing this kind of work. Now I just need to try to place it. And so you read it and deconstruct it. And then maybe you find a nice writing, writing group where you can kind of workshop this thing. Whereas that might've taken place in a small newsroom or even a bigger newsroom back in the day. It's just, I can attest to it in the newsroom I'm in now. And as a, in a Gannett newspaper, no one has the time or the bandwidth to dive in and give you, you know, be it really work on like structuring a piece, you know, try to make it as good as possible, but it then it's on to the next thing. Whereas maybe before you could start to lean in and get more, have, have a bit more air underneath the wings of a story. But these days it just, you almost have to take that agency on your own. But at least when you're in that smaller newsroom, you're, you're learning the skills and the chops to do a better reported essay or to do a longer feature when you're ready to do it on your own. Because uh, unfortunately it's kind of, it is on, on you to kind of build your own community these days because the, the community baked into these newsrooms now, it's uh, too, frem- too frenetic and too small to give you the kind of coaching that you really need or desire. Well, I know that one thing our readers would love, our listeners would love to hear from you would be like, what are the good markets now if it's not writing in the Kansas City Star Sunday supplement, which no longer exists, right? Uh, or the, I mean, it's this KC Star magazine is what it used to be called, or the Washington Post magazine, which I wrote for in the past and doesn't really exist so much anymore. 
Um, where do people go for to pitch their creative nonfiction pieces now? Yeah, it's uh, like I think the one of the better hacks is like going to the looking at those notable selections in these in these books, uh, even following writers on Twitter. They're always either promoting their own work or the work of others, and you're like, okay as you, you can kind of start making a catalog of where this kind of work appears and, and maybe there's, you just kind of start working backwards from that. So you'd even say straight up essay, creative nonfiction stuff. There's lots of great journals. Well, there's Lee, G- Lee Gutkin's journal is the, is the sort of granddaddy of the creative nonfiction journals. Exactly. Yeah. Quarterly. Uh, unfortunately what they, um, they were doing this amazing little, uh, chat book called True Story, which was a monthly thing, and it was just one essay, five to ten thousand words, and it was this little thing you could tuck in your back pocket. It was so cool, and I guess just with um, the, when COVID hit, everything it, they had to kind of put that on the back burner. And it was just such a cool little thing that you could put this one little story, put it in your back pocket, you mark it up. It was really great. So like True Story, if that comes back, that's so good. Creative nonfiction, of course, that's a quarterly. And I mean, I've just started the audio magazine, which I'm doing two next year, and then hopefully three in 2022, and then quarterly thereafter. So that'll be audio kind of in a This American Life kind of uh, structure theme with some poetry and everything and narration in between where I might even talk to the writer a little bit before their essay actually kicks in with production music and, and so forth. Um, so yeah, I think they're you know, where else? I mean, there's N plus one, which has done sports writing too, which I've noticed in the back of BSAW. What do you think about places like The Athletic, which is a pay subscription sports writing thing that a lot of reporters who used to be at The Star, which has a very strong sports uh, writing section, have gone and now are writing for The Athletic? I'm so thrilled that there's uh, more emphasis on on paywall and paid subscriptions. Uh, We've gotten so used to, and people have gotten so used to free content that it can be hard to get over that over that hurdle but when you when you're paying for the content it's you're paying not only for the great writing and the great reporting you're paying for fact checking and great editing and you're paying for a better product and better photography and to know that when you can start being less reliant on say ad dollars a subscriber's dollar value can feel strongly like it's going towards the production of the thing which is why I'm really excited by a lot of the Substack things that people are doing a lot of journalists who have their own platform whether they're covering climate or or whatever they can just say you know what like i'm just gonna be in service of the reader and you can pay me and i'm gonna put this thing out and you know that every single dollar that you give me is going into the work and i'm not gonna bombard you with advertisements and things popping up all over the place so i yeah so it's great to see that there's a market for the athletic and that, that it's global and it's going to give a lot of great writers and reporters who have fallen by the wayside, you know, bitterly from the way the newspaper industry cast them aside, whether uh, whether in buyout form or just being laid off, that there is a home for people and a home for good work. So I just want to go back for a second to we were talking a little bit before about um artistic liberties, as I think you put it. And I've always been a real traditionalist in terms of fact and creative nonfiction, which I think is partly the result of my fairly square nature. And then being trained as a reporter in newsrooms where facts are not malleable. And I just can't get my head around the idea of creating a composite character or flipping the order of events the way that I might do when writing a short story. But I know that there are lots of creative nonfiction writers who are comfortable with that. And you were both trained in newsrooms too. And I'm curious to hear what you think about that and how you've dealt with it in your own work. 
Yeah, this is a. Uh... I know a lot of authors and I, I read a lot of a lot of memoir for the podcast too and oftentimes they at least if they're going to take some of those liberties, whether it be a composite character or if they know they have to fudge something for one reason or another, most of the time at least there's an author note at the beginning and be like, Listen, in this area I needed this person's name is changed or this person is an amalgam. Um in which case, like, okay, I, I get it. At least you're being transparent. Uh, but as a nonfiction guy and as someone who came through journalism, like, to me, that just that's fiction. And so, and there's nothing wrong with that, but just call it what it is. And one of my favorite memoirs this year is Rose Anderson's of um, The Heart and Other Monsters. And she comes out right and sa- says, like, she basically made up entire sections in there. And so it's like, okay, well, she's coming out and saying that. But then when you have to start wondering, okay, what else is made up? If you made this up, what else can I trust that the rest of this is nonfiction? And even in the memoir I'm writing right now, the incarnation that it's currently at, I'm actually not comfortable calling it nonfiction because I had to kind of, I had to imagine because my parents weren't very forthright in my reporting of them. They just didn't want to talk, you know, my parents split up and very sensitive issue. And, and so they just didn't want to be forthcoming, especially about their courtship and everything. So I kind of, even through what I was able to piece together through their own memories, when they would tell me anything, I kind of had to imagine what that was like, even though what I think what I imagined is pretty spot on. Uh, And also I changed, at least in the last draft, I changed my main position on the field from shortstop to catcher because my dad was always a catcher. I did some catching, and in the end, I actually do become a catcher. It, it, and so so the title of the book is The Tools of Ignorance, which is just a nickname for the catching catcher's gear. But the fact that as a competitive player, I was a shortstop the whole time, but the book kind of had more resonance to me to, for me to be a catcher. My sister was a catcher. My dad was a catcher. So it's almost this generational position of donning the tools and being behind the plate and calling the shots. Can if I do use an author's note and say, listen, I changed my position because I think it's more artful to be like, is that still nonfiction? I don't think it is. Someone else might. My nonfiction bones and my nonfiction DNA really doesn't want to say this is a memoir when I know for a fact I changed things that are verifiably true. The problem is that when you make it a novel, then people could say, well, then I actually think the plot should go this way. And right. you, you can like you well then you know like maybe you should have this happen to you when you're in seventh grade instead of ninth grade that would work better narratively and suddenly you're like you can't explain like well I can't have it be the way because I'm writing nonfiction so I have to deal with the plot the way it was given to me and I have to you know then you sort of open up a whole other can of worms exactly and if I go down the novel route it's just like well if you're gonna make up certain things like well don't be so boxed into this and now turn turn it loose man and it's just like ugh yeah you don't want to do that don't. Do that. <laughs> exactly. And I think a lot of times, too, it's like my creative liberty was more of omission, too, when I was calling myself a catcher, which was not entirely false. But when I was in in games where I might describe myself making a play in the field, I just say like I made a play, which and so it was just more of a, a, a lie by omission and not necessarily making anything up. So it's it's a it's a weird sort of muddy, muddy waters I'm trying to tread through there. And I certainly don't want to. I don't know. I don't want to violate any rules, and especially since I sort of hang my, my as gross as this sounds, sort of hang my brand on nonfiction. 
<laughs> um, well, I mean, it's interesting to get this window into your thinking about it. And I know for, I'm sure for our listeners, it'll be a, a treat both to check out um, your extended conversations about this and other sort of related craft topics on the CNF podcast, and also to when your book comes out to find out what it is called. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, I just, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, to, to be determined. <laughs> so while we have you here as someone who works on an opinion page at a newspaper, um, we have one last question that we really want the answer to. And we want a real answer, an honest answer, no fiction. <laughs> What are the letters to the editor look like when they come in? And do you ever write any of them yourself so that they're more interesting or are they crazy enough as they come? Well, Eugene is a, in the Lane County and the Willamette Valley, by and large, where I am in Oregon, is a very politically activated community and a very opinionated community, for better or worse. And they are, it is they're some wacky wild letters that are just unprintable in terms of the the facts because I'm a one-man sort of part-time shop, so it's hard for me to do 100% fact-checking. And I'm in a morass right now of fact-checking this one woman's letter about, um, you know, COVID testing and the the accuracy of polymerous chain reactions and all this. And, uh, and it's like I'm going through her links. She gave me her links and her sources, which is nice. I always require that so I can link up in the letter and also check the go to the source one of the sources is like uh people who a couple of people who were just like chronically banned from comment sections on the guardian and they started their own thing called off guardian oh my god and that's her source so i'm so i'm thinking that this letter is totally no good um you know and other other one another woman had written in just it was when the losers and suckers thing story came out and she's just like, how dare you even publish letters about this? It's been debunked. And I wrote back to her. I'm like, no, people took issue with this. You know, people of, in Trump's camp took issue and were trying to, uh, you know, defend and say it wasn't true. But to say it's debunked, it has not been debunked. You can. And so I wrote back. I'm like, listen, I get your point. Your issue is with anonymous sourcing and. You know, if you want to write a letter about anonymous sourcing and how, you know, and, and when that story was published, because it's happened so long ago and that they probably sat on this till it was closer to the election. That's your beef. That's your letter. So if I, sometimes you can see the nugget of a good letter and you just have to give them a little nudge. And um, so you're so, editing the you have to edit the goddamn editorial page letters. I didn't realize oh, yeah. that. I just thought you just put the crazy up and let it go. Oh, no, no, it, it, it can be crazy as long as they're not racist or trolls and they're not making shit up. I will I will go to great lengths to publish just about anybody's letter, but it has to it has to check certain boxes. And I do I do edit them, though. I can't tell them I edit. I say I'll process your letter for publication. If I say edit their hackles go up and be like, you're going to edit my letter. I'm like, you have no idea how much your letter needs editing for, cl <laughs> for clarity, for 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 you know just for um, for word economy for for everything trust me I'm editing in the best service of your letter I'm not making I'm not writing your letter for you I'm just trying to make what you're sounding what you're saying sound better but I have to word it differently otherwise they they get really upset That's fascinating so do you do you shorten do you end up do you end up getting long screeds and you also mm -hmm. have to shorten them Mhm mm yes uh, the word limit is 200 for the body 
and they know that oftentimes they'll push that limit. If if it's if they write a 220 word letter, I can shorten that without changing the meaning of of their letter. If they write 250 to 300 and it's a bad letter, I just delete it. If they write it long and it's a good one, I'll be like cut this down to 200, I'll read it again, at which point I'll probably be able to cut it another 10% from there just for clarity and, and just to make it make it sound better. So, uh, but then we also let we solicit guest viewpoints from the community of 525 to 700 or 725 words. So, if someone writes a really good, real cracking letter, I'm like, you know, I, I feel like you have more to say about this. Why don't you make this a column? And you know, I'll have them do that. And I go back and forth with them quite a bit on columns. The standards a little bit higher on those. And so, uh, so that's kind of the thing. And I love getting letters from actually high school students. Sometimes that, that those come in. I think sometimes uh, English teachers assign letters to the editor for them. And and it was a really rewarding experience last week about this one uh, one young tenth grader. She wrote in about um, you know sex and gender being different, and she wrote that letter. And I wrote her back. I'm like, I, I can tell you have something more to say about this. Want to write something longer? And we went back and forth about five or six times. And she wrote a dynamite column that was able to run on Sunday on the op-ed page. And that was a really rewarding experience that stemmed from a letter and then just trying to find the gold, like, just trying to pan for gold in that letter. And um, so that was a really nice experience. And it was one to, it was nice to be able to give her, give her a little bit of that juice because, you know, she's in 10th grade. Maybe she'll run with that. That's wild. I think maybe we've declared editorial feedback dead prematurely. You can get it from Brendan, folks. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's extremely generous of you. It's uh, it, I, I grant it's nice when they're open to that feedback. Some people are very closed off to it and don't like it, um, and they get mad if I don't publish their letter. It's not a given. Sometimes they think it's like a Facebook comment that they'll just submit it, and it's just like you publish it how I submit it. I'm like that's not how this works. So it's always that. And you know, if they if they get one letter per thirty days, uh, and I keep a very detailed log, they get one guest viewpoint every ninety days, and so. Always trying to, you know, just yeah, represent as many voices as possible. Though it's a very liberal area, and and the righties get very defensive. That it's like all you do is publish the the lefty stuff. I'm like, I I publish what I get. I can't publish what I don't get. So if you have an issue that we publish only lefty stuff, I need the righty stuff too. But they just feel like they're categorically marginalized and thrown out, so they don't even submit in the first place, which just further. Uh, it further solidifies their stance that all we do is publish the left and they feel marginalized because all they're seeing is the left stuff. But I'm like, I'm like, you got to write in. If you don't, I can't publish it. Brendan, we really appreciate your time today. And for our listeners who we encourage them to check out the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, can you give them three episodes you'd like for them to, that you think they should start with? Tell you what, I, I, I thought about this and I was like, I'm going to pick one from each century of the show. So from the first 100 episodes, I would say if I had to pick one, maybe go with episode 99, which is with David Gran. It was right when uh, Killers of the Flower Moon came out, and he's just a incredibly generous and brilliant person, writer and reporter. From the second 100, you know, I'd probably go with either Eli Saslow or, Su- or Susan Orlean's return to the show. And then in the th- in the last let's say 30 in this next hundred, I'd probably go with Seth Godin, who's just a, a brilliant writer, generous creator, and uh, just a, one of those people when you listen to him, 
anything seems possible. And I think sometimes you need to hear those people where that put that kind of fuel in your tank so you can just take that energy and run and do the work that you're capable of. Brendan, thanks so much again for joining us. Listeners, don't miss the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, and you can find links to some of Brendan's own writing in our show notes and also on that podcast website. Take care. Thank you so much. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. The podcast is produced by Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We also love it when listeners post about the show on social media, like Jonathan Reber, who recently tweeted us a picture of some fiction nonfiction art. Check our Twitter feed at FNF Talk to see it. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week at Facebook at FNF Pod, on that aforementioned Twitter feed at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel. We'll provide links to all this stuff in the show notes, and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading! And goodbye, 2020.